Matthew 16 is where I would invite you to look with me this morning. Matthew 16. We're looking at the theme of taking up your cross to follow Jesus. It's a striking thought when you understand that the context in ancient history of taking up a cross anytime meant automatic death, see Roman execution, method that they had created to ensure that people would die, but die a shameful and public death. Crosses were regularly lined along the footpaths or walkways of a pedestrian society where Roman rule was oppressive and it was the stamp of that oppression to say, you don't cross Rome or you will be nailed or hanged on a cross and you will die by asphyxiation, by running out of air or loss of blood. It's a gruesome and horrible death. And so this symbol of death and dread and fear and intimidation um, is flipped on its head by Christ and his willingness to go and his call to say, come after me. I'm going to go. Will you come follow me? The bar of taking up your cross means that you're willing to go as far as death in your pursuit of Christ. And that willingness and that mindset, instead of being death, dread, despair, and intimidation, is instead life, freedom, liberty, joy to do anything Christ asks and understanding that you have him and his power to do it. This is the key of the Christian life. It's the cost of following Christ. I thought of a way to maybe symbolize this cost is uh, found in a legendary story of Socrates and Plato. Socrates being the mentor and Plato being his understudy. Legend says one day Socrates and Plato were walking down the beach in a conversation At one point, Socrates said to Plato, walk with me into the ocean. They turned and walked into the sea together. Now picture student and teacher, two of the greatest philosophical minds striding into the water side by side. The water started out around the ankles, then rose to their knees. As the water got higher, Plato wondered to himself, what is the lesson my master is trying to teach me? When the water was about waist high, then shoulder height, Socrates abruptly grabbed Plato's head and pushed him down under the water. As Plato was held down, he undoubtedly wondered again, what is the lesson that I'm being taught? What is this all about? And after a time when Plato ran out of air, he began to struggle and get his head above, struggled to get his head above water. He punched and kicked and grabbed to be set free, but Socrates was stronger and held him down. Finally, Plato blacked out due to lack of oxygen. Socrates pulled him ashore and resuscitated him. When Plato regained consciousness, he said to his master angrily, you tried to drown me. What were you doing? Socrates, in a matter-of-fact Manner explained that if he had been intending to drown him, he would not have pulled him ashore. And Plato said, well, why did you do that? And Socrates calmly replied this response. 
said, when you desire my knowledge, like you desired that breath of air, then you shall have it. Now, obviously, this is a graphic illustration that is different from following Christ, but it shows the gravity of discipleship, the seriousness of following Jesus' words as if it's our air that we breathe. The standard for following Christ is this high. No matter what culture, your Christian heritage, evangelicalism, the church abroad says to be saved, to exercise saving faith means I'm willing to consider the cost of following Christ, even if it means my death. Now, Having said that, people have died throughout the ages. We covered that last week. Biblically, there's the testimony of the martyrdom of prophets and New Testament apostles, some of whom lost their lives, Stephen's death, James in the early church, his death. Of course, that's part of the history of the church. If you read church history, the martyrs, the Puritans, the gravestones that represent heroes of the faith. Think of Wycliffe, think of Bunyan, people who who just died on the stake. I think Bunyan died through um, natural causes, but again, it's people who were imprisoned. We don't know what kind of physical persecution we would endure in third world countries, in Islamic countries around the world, in, in sort of Marxist Society, we know that the church goes underground. We know things happen to people. People die for the faith. This is normal to our awareness in the world. And yet, in our life, we might think maybe something will turn at a level where I'll go to jail or, or be persecuted in indirect ways or perhaps have to give my life. So, what does this mean for me? And I would just say this. No matter where we are in history or with the level of threat that we are under, the the cost of following Christ is the same. We are willing to give our life for Christ. The bar is the same no matter what the application. We might not and probably will not be called to give our life for Christ. Probably not. But the call to give your life to Christ as a mindset as a heart commitment, is non-negotiable. That's what Christ is saying here. Look at verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And follow me. This is a two-part series. Uh, The first paragraph uh, is... Verses 21 to 23, the second is 24 to 28. We're in the second half of this series, and just by way of review, this is a mindset. And it's the mindset that we're after of taking up our cross. A mindset that Jesus first models is the mindset that Jesus requires. The mindset that he models going into his physical death on the cross is the mindset that he requires for every disciple who follows him. He does it. He's got the integrity to do it. He did it. And so we follow him in that same mindset. And point one of last week in the big picture outline is Jesus' mindset is our model. His mindset as our model. It's verses 21 to 23, just by way of review. Jesus was accepting the Father's will. That's what he's saying in verse um, 21. 
he must go. You see that again. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This was his mindset. This was his commitment. This was his vow. This was his preparation for his disciples as he was on his final lap of three years in the walking tour with his um, more intimate disciples, his 12 and, and those who were gathering around that. And he's saying, I must go. And it's the religious leaders, those whom the Jews would not have respected, who are going to be rebellious against me, against my teaching and cause. And they are going to facilitate my death, my death. And he was accepting the Father's will. This was his mindset. By contrast, we learned in the next few verses, 22 and 23, Peter is rejecting God's will. He's rejecting this. And his rejection looks like insubordination. It looks like being an impediment, being satanic, and being idolater. Look at verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Peter takes the role of the life coach and says, let me in um, a quiet way take you aside with the greatest instinct of nobility to help correct you, to rebuke Jesus and say, your passion has taken over your logic. You're not thinking clearly, Lord, and let me just set you on a path privately to say this should never happen to you. You're perfect. You're Without sin, the, uh, the scribes, Pharisees, elders, they have no right to do this to you. Don't go into the lap of their um, trap. And, and, and I want to just say, this should never happen to you, far be it. And so that's a, a noble instinct, a noble exhortation, but it was all about Peter. It was all about him. And Jesus reveals this. He says, but it, it says in verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. In other words, you're being an insubordinate. And by the way, you're an impediment. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block. You are a hindrance to me. That word hindrance is scandal on stumbling block. You're in the way. And I'm calling you Satan because you're satanic in your thinking. This is what the devil wants you to say. This is the devil's temptation. And it was a strong temptation, I think, even in Christ's Heart, Because he's saying, you're a stumbling block. You're in the way. And Jesus is sort of laser-like in his rebuke. He, without hesitation, says, no, this is satanic. You're being insubordinate, and you are an impediment to me. You're a stumbling block. And by the way, this is a satanic temptation that's coming through your lips right now. Calls it right out. And ultimately, shows the root of this temptation as idolatry. Verse 23, you, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. This is our whole point, mindset. You're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're not trained on God's word. You're missing God's will here. You're thinking in terms of yourself, not in terms of God. You're being an idolater. You're worshiping what you want, not what God wants, even as dramatic as me going to the cross or to lose my life. So within that correction, there's integrity because Christ knows his mission. He's concerned to go there and he's going first. It's hard to get into this mindset. 
I think, as I mentioned last week, it would be easy to be hard on Peter because we know the end of the story. We know the necessity of the cross. We knew that the sacrifice was predicted from the Old Testament prophecies, the suffering servant, the one who would be pierced. It had to happen. He had to be the lamb before he could come back as the lion. But from Peter's vantage point, he's just trying to protect Christ. It's so easy to get off kilter. But even for Christ, we need to be sympathetic because his strong rebuke is a reflection of the battle it is is to have a mindset where you're willing to go. You're willing to go. You're willing to leave loved ones. You're willing to leave comfort. I mean, he loved these disciples. He didn't want to put his mother through what he put his mother through. He didn't want to put his friends through that. He didn't want to endure the, the physical suffering. And for sure, we know from Gethsemane, where Jesus is praying the night of, as he's absorbing the reality that he's going to bear every believer's eternal hell on himself in those moments on the cross where he's saying, Lord, if there's any way that this cup could be passed from me, let it be done. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He's in the throes of desperation at that point, sweating great drops of blood, falling on the ground in faint, in a fainted shock, saying over and over in prayer, not my will, but your will be done. And through that struggle, through that wrestling through, in sinless perfection, he, he sort of thwarted the temptation and waged war against Satan and came victorious in his submission. And that is the submissive mindset path that he calls every one of you to follow him in. That's where the bar is set. Follow me. This is what verses 24 through 28 unpack. Why do we follow him? How do we gain a mindset that is the mind of Christ at this level where we deny ourselves, take up our cross and truly follow Jesus? I believe as I've been studying this text, that this is a important principle for all of us to grasp you and for me, that this is what faith really looks like. This is where freedom really comes and joy comes when you are willing to follow him no matter the cost. It's the cost of discipleship. It's a decided willingness to take up your cross and do war within your soul to get there. It's a wrestling match of submission to the Father's will. What Jesus models, here's the principle, what Jesus models, he requires What Jesus models, Jesus requires. It's dying for the faith that will not likely happen to you, but the prescription to a mindset that's willing to die for the faith that is non-negotiable. So verses 24 to 28 tell us how to get there. And this is point two, the big picture points. Number one, Jesus' mindset is our model, verses 21 to 23. If you're taking notes on the big picture, number two, our mindset as Jesus' disciple. This is our mindset as Jesus' disciple, 24 through 28. How do we get this mindset? How do you know that you have this mindset? You have to examine your expectations, and that's what we're doing. Let's examine our hearts through these verses. Verses 24 to 26 is... The idea that self-denial is costly. Have you paid the price of self-denial? Self-denial is costly. This is our mindset as Jesus' disciple. We are considering the cost of following him. Self-denial. What do you have to deny? First, you will deny your identity. You are willing to deny your identity. 
It's costly. But in our culture, the culture that Os Guinness, the social, Christian social critic, said is the I post, therefore I am culture. It's the culture of the narcissist, right? Everybody's a narcissist. If everybody's a narcissist, then nobody's a narcissist, right? But, you know, there's a lot of narcissism talk because there's a lot of egoism out there. There is a lot of next-level, out-of-control self-ism where people don't want to work. All they want to do is play. All they want to do is be about them. Their agendas are all about themselves. They're anti-foundational. They're anti-structure. They're anti-military. They're anti-subordination. They're anti-even uh, in the job organization. They, they don't want to just be an invisible, behind-the-scenes servant to make something go. They want something for themselves. They're thinking only in terms of time off, life, health, wealth, and escape, not in terms of a good job, working well, working hard, out of integrity, not for self, but for a cause that's greater than themselves, right? That kind of language is obscure compared to egoism, narcissism, selfism, self-absorption. I heard on uh, secular radio, forgive me for listening to it, but I, I heard on secular radio this, this sort of soundbite that, oh, in today's culture, you know, the average 29-year-old is, um, has more discretionary income than ever before. This isn't in my notes. Ever before. And it's because they live at home. And, and they don't have as many bills to pay, and so they have more money than ever before to spend it on entertainment, travel, and different things. And that's just an amazing statistic. And it ended. And I was just sitting there going, and the end of the world is near. What, what are we talking about? It was just, no, that's, that's just really helpful information. We just need to know that. Wow. Your identity. This is lost when you follow Christ. It's the call to be invisible. It's the call to be like John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. It's being behind the scenes. This is the invitation Jesus gives. Look at verse 24. If anyone, this isn't just to the 12, it is to the 12. It's not just to the crowds that are with the 12. It's not just to that time period. It's not just to the Jews. It's not just to the Gentiles. This is for everyone in the hearing of God's word throughout all time and all the ages. It's for you today as you hear this word. If anyone is coming after Christ, this is the non-negotiable way to get him, to follow him. To be a believer, this is what you have to do. You have to come after him by denying self, denying himself. You lose yourself. When I was growing up in the Bible Belt, I heard a lot of invitations. Um, that's what they called them, where you called to come forward, just as I am without one plea. You know, Lamb of God, I come, I come. And then it's the fourth verse, and then they turn it in the sixth verse, the eighth verse, because nobody's come. And then finally people come, and you come forward. And what are you coming forward for? You come forward to get prayer, to get comfort, to get help, to be prayed for, for this to happen, to watch this, get saved. It's as if you're getting something. Now, I know salvation is a gift, and it's by grace alone, but... It's interesting when you think about those kinds of invitations where, hey, come and get something like you're buying something versus what Jesus says. He says, if anyone would come after me, you need to deny self. Come forward and deny yourself. Be invisible. Be invisible. Be willing to give everything away. Not get something, but give away something. The crowds wanted healing. 
They wanted health from Jesus, miracles, deliverance, teaching. All those things were good things. But Jesus now is narrowing the requirement of what it means to truly follow him. He's telling it to everyone. God's sovereign work of saving grace is open to the whole world. Don't underestimate the power of open-air evangelism. It is for all to come. But come to Christ at the cost of losing yourself. It's not I, but Christ. Think of Paul's words. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Think of Paul's words in Galatians. I am crucified with Christ and it is not I that live. Nevertheless, it is I who live through Christ. Christ in me, the hope of glory. The glory goes to God when we're truly following him. Not many people want to follow this, though the gate and call is wide, the price makes it narrow, the cost of discipleship. It's not for comfort, ease, health, wealth, even wholeness. These things can be given to us by the Lord. It's a call for obedience. This is the aim of the call. It's not self-help. It's self-denial, self-denial. On the surface, there's a lot of trends towards denial. You can deny yourself food. You can deny yourself money. You can eat less. You can spend less. You can deny yourself entertainment. I'm fasting from social media. You know, I'm on a social media fast. Pray for me. I mean, there are those levels of denial. Those can be good things. Those can be good things, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. There's the denial of clutter, minimalism. I must have that, you know? All these things are good in terms of denial, but that's superficial denial. Um, it's not, on a deeper level, a philosophical denial. Um, Buddhism, Eastern philosophy, lose yourself to lose yourself, as one preacher cast it. Philosophy of Buddhism, of self-emptying, uh, reaching a, a state of spiritual existentialism, even through working out or meditation or walking in nature where you just sort of relax. That's a level of denial, but it's not what Jesus means. This is not saving denial. There's an intellectual, logical exercise that you can go through, like French philosopher Blaise Pascal said. It's the divine wager. He says, quote, faith is not to be proved, so what will it harm What harm will come to you if you gamble on its truth and it proves false? Like, who cares? If you try it and it wasn't real, you didn't lose anything. If you gain, you gain all. If you lose, you lose nothing. It's a divine wager. So wager then without hesitation. Okay, that's just a logical game that's basically answering agnosticism. It's saying, I can't really know for sure, so I'll just think my way to heaven. Or I'll empty myself to get to heaven. Or I'll self-deny and self-improve and better myself to get to heaven. None of that works. None of that is what Jesus is talking about. Jesus calls for a self-denial that is saving, that is redemptive. What does that mean? How do we get there in this narcissistic, self-absorbed society? Well, the Bible's use of denial is always serious. It's always grave. It's always heavy. Think about it. When Peter denied Christ negatively, he denied Christ instead of denying self. He denied Christ to a servant girl uh, while Christ was being crucified, while he was being whipped. At the moment of truth, 
Peter's put to the test and Satan is taking over. His temptations have invaded his heart. Just as he was a stumbling block before earlier, now it's full tilt. He's being sifted like wheat by Satan and he's cursing and he's denying Christ three times. Jesus predicted it, Mark 14, 30, and Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. That's the same word, heavy. To deny Christ is super serious, but there's something even more serious than that, and that's what can happen. If you deny Christ in this life, he'll deny you in the next. Denial, Luke 12, 9. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. I never knew you to be denied. That is the most horrible state to be in, to be denied by the Lord in judgment. Let's flip it positive. This same word denial is the word that is being applied for what we must do. We must deny self as if we're looking upon self in judgment and saying, I never knew you. I'm putting self away. Very hard to do. It's a seriousness. Step one, how do you do it? You take up your cross. You're willing to die. You're giving up on aspiration, past, present, future, all to the Lord. It's not a suicide mission. This is not the Taliban. This is not radical Islam, like those that flew planes into World Trade Center at 9-11. It's not reckless bravado. It's not trying to put ourselves in harm's way to be a better Christian than somebody else. That's all just superficial games. It's a mindset. It's an attitude of submission wrought by the Holy Spirit that you say, you know what, I'm willing to give it all to you, Lord, even if it means death, no matter what. And so then I'm free to live up to that standard. Once you're there, then everything else beneath that becomes joy and freedom. And even if it means that. Deny self, step one. Step two, be willing to give Your life for Christ, take up your cross, step three, follow Christ with everything you have. Follow him. Deny identity, willingness to die, freedom to follow. Nothing's holding you back. What does this look like? Think about Paul's testimony. He was writing to the Corinthians who were in all kinds of immorality and sin and idolatry and division, following people, cherry-picking their leader um, to the division of... Other people within the body, Paul was correcting this with letters. He's writing from Ephesus, and he's clearing the decks by talking about true persecution and suffering that was happening with Christians and saying, in essence, the reason that the suffering and the persecution is not a negative thing is because of the resurrection. It's because of the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, 30 and 32, he says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Listen to his phrase here. He says, I die every day. I'm free. I've got a target on my back and I'm not, the the church isn't going down and crumbling because people are being eaten in the arena because there's the resurrection. That's what he talks about. He says, what do I gain if humanly speaking, I fought with beast at Ephesus? What do I gain if I was in, in there and just get eaten? He said, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and drink, for tomorrow we die. I'm willing to die. I'm willing to die. I'm there. 
I've accepted that cost, and so I'm free to die every day. I can accept the consequences of being a Christian every single day. As negative as death or everything up to that point. So let's eat and drink and live our lives because I could die and I've accepted that. It's dying daily. Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, said it this way. He said, to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. That's the mindset and follow me. It's a death to self mindset that Paul symbolized and modeled. It's a mindset of freedom. I want to build a practical bridge to this and I'm going to read a quote from Mere Christianity. It's what C.S. Lewis wrote. He's interesting. He's a literary theologian, so you need to keep that in context for how he writes. But I think what he wrote, this is at the, in the final pages of Mere Christianity. It's a pretty good read. It's a very classic book. But he talks about the cost of discipleship in a way that I think could be helpful. Listen to what he says. He says, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way, And let him take us over. The more truly ourselves we become. That's the freedom. Our real selves are waiting for us in him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity, where I come from, my upbringing, what family I was part of, and surroundings and natural desires. In fact, What I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and I cannot stop. What I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts. It's when I truly turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality that I finally begin to have a real personality on my own. Nevertheless, you must not go to Christ for the sake of a new self. He means like, I post, therefore I am. That's not it. As long as your own personality is what you are bothering about, you're not going to him at all. What does he mean? He's saying, if you're all about you, then you're thinking about where you came from, your heredity, your upbringing, your name, your, your physical organism, what you can achieve and do in your own strength, where you come from, what job you have, the marketplace. And he calls these the trains of events, like a train station, the trains of events that you didn't start and cannot stop. All that stuff is just ongoing. That becomes who you are versus finding your whole self in Christ. How do you get there? Well, this is how Isaiah did it. He was drawn into the throne room of God, saw the thrice holy God, and began to self-immolate. He began to melt. It says, woe is me, verse 5 of Isaiah 6. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord, that's the Lord Jesus, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs, From the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Where did Isaiah land? He landed on mission for Christ. How did he get there? I am nothing. Woe is me. 
You're everything. I'm losing my identity. I'm melting. I'm falling before you. My life is about being redeemed, and now I'm available. What does that look like in the New Testament? Paul's mindset, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Paul was still Paul, but he was Paul looking at life through Christ and Christ's mission alone. So first, it'll cost you your identity to deny Christ. Secondly, it costs you your life. The word life is the word suke or soul. Applied in verse 25, it's applied in terms of our lifetime. Listen as I read it. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What do you lose first? You lose your identity because you're denying yourself. And secondly, you'll lose your life for Christ. This is everything about your life's ambitions that you're willing to give up. It'll cost you that. Is personal ambition bad or wrong? Well, it can be. Personal ambition, if that's the chief end of your life, that you did certain things or achieved certain things or received certain accolades that you lived for in this life, if that's your life, that can easily become self-absorption, idolatry, empty, unsatisfying, hurtful. It can be a joyless existence. But on the contrast, have no ambition can be equally ungodly, called to achieve, provide, be skilled, use talents. If we deny all of that, and we don't provide for ourselves, don't provide for family members, that can be equally sinful. It's digressive and passive. But on the other hand, ambition can be self-feeding sin, setting your your mind on the things of men, which is verse 23, Peter. So how do we strike the balance? Well, we strike the balance with Jesus' words. We study the scripture. We hit the sweet spot by what Jesus says. It's ambition that's trained on Christ, a drive for Christ with eternity in mind. This is, again, Jesus' invitation to all. Just as verse 24, if anyone would come after me, look at verse 25, for whoever would save his life. Whoever, if you're in the trap of trying to save your life, self-preserve, keep it all going, you're going to lose your life. It's like trying to grab mercury. It's going to slip out of your hands. It's a riddle and it's a warning. Whoever would do this is going to lose it. A mission of self-preservation means you're trying to save your life, which means it's gone. It's like building your whole life on the sand, waiting for the hurricane to come to sweep your house away. Instead of the rock, it's storing up, filling up barns, filled with all your goods and all of which you can store away when this night your soul is accounted for. Luke 12, 20. Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared. Whose will they be? It's like you're gone. I was thinking first hour, I've been here 13 and a half years and four different leaders who were here at the church when I first came have died. Four different ones. People come, people go, things happen. And I think we need to count our life in view of that and in view of eternity. Now, let me explain what I mean by this. Do I mean you don't save money for the future? You don't prepare? You're not a good steward? It's not what I'm saying. But if you live solely for pleasure, achieved here on earth, you will lose your 
life. People today are concerned for planning for retirement, and I hear about that a lot, and that's important. But I think a lot of times the root compulsion for trying to save enough money for the future is trying to stave off the fear and dread of what you can't control now. People are afraid. It's less about setting up a comfortable future and more about feeling secure right now. At least that's how they sell retirement plans on TV. Peace of mind. Oh, I can finally relax because I have enough money. That's scary, especially in terms of how your health can just stop (laughs) or things can happen. Or someone might need something dramatically and how can you not give it away? Storing up security to save yourself from the dread of the unpredictable future as an end unto itself is to lose your life. I think of people who have had their life snuffed out suddenly. One thing I've noticed is a lot of times people who do amass a lot of wealth then retire from their job where they amass the wealth from, but then their new job is keeping what they have. And all of their main concern is to not lose what they've gained. That can become an idol. I do believe there are those who are uniquely gifted to acquire physical wealth, and I'm thankful for those people. I'm thankful for people who give. I'm thankful for people who, who build, who do things, and who have that, those powers of discernment and stewardship, and I think that's super important to have. But there's also other people who steward their life differently. There are teachers, teachers here at the school that make their salary, but, but really you can't compare the hours that they pour into kids and lives and people and brain bites that they give with the money that they earn. And that's completely fine and they're completely content in that because it's a calling and it's a mission. It's not primarily about earning money. It's sacrifice. There are protectors. There are people who put themselves in harm's way, who fly things or or have guns and do things and and are prepared to give their life. And so their, their goal is not to acquire wealth as much as to protect. There are people who are surgeons, who are artists, who are physicians, general practitioners, who are military, coaches, inventors, engineers, farmers, construction builders, salesmen, fishermen, firemen, writers, actors, politicians, mothers. All of these things come with a calling. And there are different levels that occupations bring money into or not. And people steward that at different levels. And there are people who multiply wealth. And there are people who live paycheck to paycheck. But no matter where you are on that spectrum or with what calling or what gift mix or what personality or what proclivity or what conviction, the standard or bar to give your life away is there. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about resources per se, as much as your willingness, your decided willingness to count the cost and lose your identity in Christ and then to be willing to lose your life for Christ, to lay your ambition at his feet, whatever that means. He's addressing the deeper level of the soul's motivation for why you're here on earth. Why are you here? What are you doing? What are you doing with what God has given you? As you multiply gifts and talents and provide and do all those things, you you don't just do those as an end in and of themselves so that at 65, 70, 75, or 80, you can relax a little more. It's a different mindset. Considering 
this life and the life to come. And I think that's why this word life here in verse 25 is suke, which is soul, which is speaking in terms of your lifetime in view of eternity. If you try to save your soul through human means, then you're going to lose your soul ultimately. You're not really a Christian. It's not the mindset of losing your life for the sake of gaining Christ. That's, that's the reverse way to say it. I lose my life and gain Christ. What does that look like? Have we ever... I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but have you ever lost something that's significant to you? You know, your, your phone with all your stuff, can't find it, can't find your keys. You ever lost a kid in an amusement park? I may or may not have done that at Disney World one time or land for a few minutes. Owen lived, it's fine. All right. All that to say... Um, if you've ever lost something of value, you realize that you, you're euphoric when you find it, something that really is meaningful to you. You know, it was put in a different room, left at a different house. It was under the seat. And, and what it takes for me when I lose something is for me to completely take a breath and just stop worrying about it altogether. Uh, it's the prayer where you say, Lord, you know where it is, so you'll bring it to me if and when you want me to have it. And I can't busy myself looking for it anymore. I just, I just give it away. That ambition, I'm just quelling it. I'm sub. I'm just going, you know, let it now just find me. And, you know, then you think outside the box or you kind of go into a different place or, you know, a different path. And you go, there it is. And, and, and finding Christ is like that. You give away self-preservation and you find intimacy with the Lord. Think about what Peter sacrificed when he was denying Christ instead of denying self. He's tempted by Satan, through a servant girl, at the moment of truth. I'm swearing, I'm, I do not know him, I never knew him. Oh, but you talk like, it doesn't matter if I talk like him, I'm not of Christ. He lost an incalculable loss of dignity, leadership, despair, and guilt. He lost confidence, lost his assurance of salvation, felt like he lost his calling, and he lost fellowship with the Lord. He wept, he made eye contact, wept bitterly. Christ's restoration after Christ's resurrection came later, soon after, and Peter was faced with a renewed choice. Will you deny yourself and follow me? That's what Jesus is saying. Do you love me? Are you willing to lose your identity, lose your life, and follow me for the calling I have before you? Self-denial, what did it give him? The renewed choice of regaining dignity, leadership, confidence, assurance, calling, direction that comes from self-denial. This is the self-denial of saving faith. If you're self-absorbed, you are not self-denying. If you're self-absorbed as a pattern of your life and you have no indication of the Holy Spirit's conviction that that's wrong, examine yourself and see if you're really a Christian at all. The joy comes and the fellowship comes from self-denial. Thirdly and lastly, It'll cost you not only your identity and not only your life, but it'll cost you your soul. Verse 26, verse 26. By the way, verses 27 and 28 are prologue to chapter 17. So we'll pick up on that next time. Look at this final verse for this morning, verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is targeting the person at the deepest level 
with his challenge by hitting at the soul. Suke, it's used again here in this verse, but this in terms of eternity. Not just your lifetime in view of eternity, but now your soul. Do you want the whole world, not not itemized, like you want this of the world or that of the world, this fame, this car, this house, this family, this, this, this outcome, this, this um, bank account. Do you want this? Do you want the whole world or do you want your soul? That's, that's the comparative, comparative valuation here. Which do you want? Contemplate this one thing versus another. If you could have the whole world, would you have it to the forfeit of your own soul? Let me... Throw this out here. Most everyone, I'll just say it generically, most everyone would say, I want the world instead of my soul. Your sinful appetites would, I want it all. I can have it all. I want it all. Even to the risk of my own soul. No, the forfeiture of my own soul. I want it all. That's everybody except those who are genuinely following Christ. Everybody wants the whole world unless you have considered the cost and followed Christ to this extent saying, I am willing to die for you because death for Christ is complete freedom from the world. That's what you gain. You gain Christ and you gain an unfettered, unshackled life in him because you have all of Christ. You have everything in Christ your life ambition to gain things here solely or wholly? If that's your life's mission, then you have no future with Christ in eternity. I recently heard a preacher use this as an illustration. He's talking about Steve Jobs, and Steve Jobs was the co-founder of Apple. We know that inventor, entrepreneur, estimated total net worth of 10 million, 10, sorry, Wrong, wrong letter. Ten billion. Ten billion dollars at his death. He died October 5th, 2011. He died a Buddhist. He died of pancreatic cancer. It's the cancer that just takes you. He was 56 years old. So he had the whole world in terms of money. He had the whole world in terms of His making his mark on the world, he changed the world in terms of touchscreen technology. That changed the world, at least temporarily. It's kind of an upgrade in many ways, something we enjoy from his brilliance, discipline, simplicity, and genius. In terms of all these things, though, and influence, though unmistakably powerful, No matter how much you could value his life and influence and money, at his death, he was completely cursed, utterly bankrupt by forfeiting his soul. It's just shocking to think about. They can be that accomplished, that up on step, and then into eternity, and your soul is forfeited. You're doomed and damned. Cursed, condemned forever. 
Jesus ends this verse and this thought with a negotiation in heaven. Look at this final phrase. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Picture someone saying, I have billions. I I want my soul to go to heaven. I have billions behind that. Please take everything I have, all that I've accomplished, all that I've done. Take my identity. Take my life. Take my money. Take my ingenuity, take my creativity, please, so my soul can go to heaven. I now value my soul. I know I didn't value it before, but now I value it. That's the negotiation in heaven. And that's the question I have for you today. What is the value of your own soul to yourself? Do you value your soul? Because if you don't value your soul, then you won't give it to Christ at the level that he's calling you to give it, which is all the way unto death if it was required To do so, I have the mindset where I've given you everything, my identity, my life, my soul for eternity. It's all yours, Lord. We can't add value to our soul. We can't buy ourselves into heaven. We can only be bought by Christ into heaven. He already owns us. He already owns your soul. Whether you are saved or unsaved, he owns you as creator. And so if you go against him as the creator then you'll be condemned or he owns you by buying you through the precious blood of his son been bought with a price which is it if your heart says i will follow you all the way to the end by conviction you know that then that's saving faith that means that he has bought you with his precious blood that's the commitment is the threshold the commitment is The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. That's what we sing at camp. That's it's as simple as that. This world, I'm dead to that. I might be tempted to think of, I'm dead to it. I'm following Christ. I'm bought by the precious blood of Christ. I'm trusting in his sacrifice alone to save. He died on that cross to save me and I'm willing to die for him because I love him. Because he bought me. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You're his. The great C.T. Studd, Cambridge graduate, was a famous cricketer. He was a strong athlete known on a sort of an international scale. He was a Cambridge graduate with his buddies, his six other friends. He and them, they made up what was called the Cambridge Seven, and they would listen to this guy who would come in as a chapel speaker to their Christian school, their Christian school called Cambridge. And at chapel, Hudson Taylor would show up and he would say, hey, come join me on this radical mission and we're going to go win China for Christ and I'm gonna, we're going to dress out like the Chinese and, and win them to Christ and translate scripture. That'll be great to give your life from Oxford to China. Come with me. And his call was so radical that C.T. Studd couldn't resist and he went with his buddies and they were known as the Cambridge Seven. Like little young 20-somethings just going, I'm going for Christ no matter what. He ended up setting up not only a mission post there, but then in Africa, the heart of Africa mission. He later invested there. It became a worldwide evangelistic crusade and movement. Summarizing his life, C.T. Studd wrote this in a poem 
He said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last.